river's full of hope. I've got the urge to walk the prairie and chase the antelope. Aspen's gold on snow-capped peaks, the elk call me away. I can't keep my mind on working on this fine September day. I've got Nimrod neurosis, longbows on the brain. I'm an outdoor junkie. Welcome back to the Track Quest Podcast. James Orr here. Joining me as always, my oh-so-confused and always changing his mind, Bob the Bowhunter Borland. Uh, yep, that's for sure. What's going on? Oh, not much. We've just been beating our heads over the wall, trying to decide what are what are cooler, blacktails or mule deer. Yeah, yeah, it's a tough decision, always. Haven't hunted blacktails in a few years. And I don't know. Planning the false hunts is tough. You got elk only rut at a certain time, the deer rut at a certain time. It's just a tough decision every year. You can't be in the same place twice or Nope. Nope. Earn it. And and then these uh podcasts we've done with uh these mule deer master slayers. It's not yeah. making it any easier. No, that's for sure. And see they they I, I don't know, I like it's pretty hard for me. I'm equal opportunity. I like hunting elk as much as mule deer, as much as blacktails. Like it's it's hard for me to decide. And these guys are pretty much just like, well, I'd rather go mule deer hunt. So. Yeah. Well, some of these guys we're talking to don't know about blacktails because it's not in their repertoire. Um, I guess. I guess we need to get some blacktail guys on. Maybe yeah. that'll get us. We're working on that. We're working on that. But. Yeah. I think for the most part, <clears throat> they know about them. They just don't want to hunt in the rain, the crappy jungle. Can't blame them. Yeah. So it is. It is uh, it's a beautiful country, though, between the jungle and the desert. So it's it's uh, just don't have enough time. I need to be able to retire. And... So you got four days off next week with no family. Well, I got okay. It was. I thought it was four days, but. The first day I had to take take them to the airport in the afternoon, and then the fourth day I got to pick them up in the afternoon. So I got like two and a half days. Ah. Then I'm gonna yeah I'm gonna go back to some of my old haunts and do a lot of scouting and hiking and see if I can find some sign or some sheds of some big bucks still living there in my old blacktail haunts. So uh, yeah, it'll be fun. It's gonna be go. freedom, freedom. I went. I went one day last week. I think I posted some of that stuff on our Instagram story, and that's the first time I've gone shed hunting without my daughter in three years. <laughs> so for you guys that have kids, that's that's just part of life. Those those days of freedom, enjoy them because it's uh, it changes when you have kids, and you got to pack those little suckers around, which is a blast, and I wouldn't trade it for anything, but. The days you get freedom to just go as far as you want, not have to pack snacks and waters and stop for this or that or whatever. It's uh, they're few and far between anymore. So <clears throat> I got to take advantage of it. Next week I'm gonna hit it hard. Yeah, he's gonna go look for blacktails. Yes. He was supposed to go look for mule deer, but he changed his mind. I was gonna, but but yeah, I I uh, since the trip got cut a little shorter, anyways, I think it's gonna work out better. All in all, and I still got to go to some physical therapy too 
couple times a week. My shoulder's getting better, but I still can't shoot or nothing. I got, I only got a few weeks left, and I'm going back to work. So. And you're gonna borrow your friend's dog, so that'll be a good adventure. Yep. It's own. Yep. Took her. Uh, we took her up a few years ago. She found a few sheds. I used to have. For those of you that don't know, I used to have a couple of Vislas that I had trained to find sheds. So I was cheating a little bit, and uh, I would go up there and. It's a lot easier to find them in the jungle with dogs. For sure, definitely. Yeah. And, yeah. So, yeah, I'm just left with utter confusion talking to Bob all the time here. Are we going to go hunt? I know, I had, uh, I had him talk a mule to deer. him just hunting mule deer like two weeks ago. <laughs> uh, I'm ready to just uh, put up my own sail and fly away into the wind. Yeah. So we got an awesome, amazing, we say this every week, but this guy, uh, someone we've been wanting to get on the podcast for like a long time. We've been calling him and harassing him, begging him and pleading him, becoming friends with his wife. Um, last I heard, I think our number was like right by the, right by the phone. You know, we'd call, leave a message. Oh yeah, it's Bob again, calling again. <laughs> Yeah, and he's he's just he's fun to talk to over the year and a half we've been working on him too. He'd, obviously, he's never listened to a podcast, so he doesn't know what the heck they are. Um, but yeah, just a regular blue collar carpenter. That um, yeah, me, me and Bob are going to go out on a limb, and we're going to say that he perhaps and very well may be. The greatest bow hunter of all time. Yeah, I would say so. I mean, I don't know. It's greatest. It's so weird to say that about bow hunting. Sure. You know, it's just like, it's not a, it's not like we're throwing a javelin. You know what I mean? Sure. And even he's like, I'm not a good hunter. I just spend a lot of time at it. So, but I can tell you this, like, I don't think there's anybody that has killed more mule deer with a real bow and arrow than this guy. He's killed. And big ones too. I mean, he, he says that when he goes hunting, you know, that's, that's the cake and getting something's just icing on the cake, but he's killed 37 Pope and Young mule deer. And I think he's killed like seven or eight over 200 inches. For you, the guys that don't keep score, that's, those are gigantic monsters. <laughs> so it, unbelievable. unbelievable. And, and for a guy that, you know, Hunting anymore, as we talked about in the, you know, a lot of these episodes and the one with Doug and Don is, you know, you get the, this, all this trophy stuff and the guides and outfitters and the price of the tags and the, and the more we want, they want to regulate all these hunts because of the too many people, because technology's made it too easy. Now they're just, you know, they just jack up all the prices. Keep, that's their way to do it. They either cut tags or jack up prices. So to be able to do it, if you're, if you have a lot of money, you know, you can go pay $7,500 to go hunt, you know, Alberta or whatever, or, you know, wherever you want to go every year. Like, yeah, that's, that's still, still hard to kill a mule deer with a recurve, even if you have money. But to be able to do it on a carpenter's wage is just, it's incredible. So, I mean, yeah. this guy is no different than you or I. He's just, he is just, um, he's prioritized bow hunting because he loves it so much i mean he he has taken you know his job 
as a carpenter and he just had his boss basically told him he'd be back in a couple months and just take leave without pay and go hunting every fall and uh yeah that's absolutely incredible yeah i mean the guy's accomplished from the the mule deer to the elk woods pronghorn some alaskan trips and like you said he has prioritized his time to get out there and do it and yeah. uh He's found some success along the way, and uh, his accomplishments are outstanding. And um, his uh, passion for the sport and his attitude that he takes with him to the woods is outstanding as well. I mean, he's just a great dude. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, like I said about, you know, the best being the best or anything it's 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 not about that and he he says that very well especially at the end you know we asked him advice and he said just keep walking <laughs> just keep walking and that's i think that's the mentality he's used his whole you know whole life bow hunting is he just keeps going i mean last year i talked to him before and after season and he had tags in three or four different states and he hunted from the beginning of september into you know the first or second week of december nonstop the whole time and he killed one buck and he was he's just tickled as can be you know he's he's hunted idaho what he tells he's hunted idaho 26 years he's only killed three bucks there (laughs) but he's just that's just what did he say that the potential's there though like he just and we we tried to get him we tried to get a lot of the tips we're gonna get him back on but but when when's the best time to go? If you ask him when the best time to go is, there's not a best time. He's just gonna go every day. <laughs> That's yeah. what you'll hear us talk about. Well, if you had to go, he's like, well, I just go every day. That's just what he does, and uh, it's awesome. And if he's not out, you know, hunting, he's, I mean, he spent 20 days hunting mountain lions this year without dogs. I mean, he's he's killed a couple of them without dogs, but he hasn't killed one in like 20, 30 years. He said, but he still spends 20 days you know, out just, just in the woods. And that's, and I think people lose sight of what bow hunting's all about. And back when, when, uh, all these, you know, fathers of bow hunting were pushing for these seasons, that's why we got these super long seasons because we needed them. We needed to be able to wander around the woods for months at a time to be able to kill anything. Cause it was tough. And yeah. now with all this technology and starting to cut back on all that stuff, it's just kind of heartbreaking to, to see it start to go. So he, uh, he definitely gets it. Yeah. You find, you look at any of these guys that, uh, find a lot of success and, um, it always comes down to time. I mean, skill set is definitely a huge part of it, but I think your skill set, uh, just gets better and better with the time you put in. So these guys that devote so much time to scouting and bow hunting, it's no wonder they're so good. It's, it's the time spent. I mean, that's, these guys don't go out uh, on the weekend and knock a buck over and put their tag on it and, and then they're done for the year. It just, it just doesn't work that way. Yeah. I mean, I, I can guarantee you there's not a, there's not a blue collar man that has bow hunted more than Mike Barrett. <laughs> I, I could say hunting two or three months a year. Every year for the last 40, maybe. Yeah. I mean, 40 some. I mean, 40 some. Yeah. That's, 40 some. That's just absolutely insane. 
and there's years like this year where he might get one, but then there's years where he'll kill two or three giant bucks, <laughs> and he's also killed like 19 Pope and Young bulls too, you know, 19 yeah. big bulls with a bow, and he just hunts those kind of when he has to when he gets a tag around his house, like sounds like it's just not his thing, <laughs> which is crazy. It's absolutely crazy. He doesn't shoot past 20 yards. I mean, we'll get into all this stuff on the podcast, but, um, yeah, we're really excited to, you know, get this one out there for sure. Yeah. He marches to his own drum beat. That's for sure. And, (laughs) and, uh, yeah, I think you guys are really going to enjoy this. But before we have Mike Barrett on, we are, thanks to Bear Archery Products, we are going to give away. What do we got, James? What do we got? A Bear Kodiak 59er. This thing is sweet. Yes. Okay, I'm going to hit this thing. I just, I'm doing the random number generator this time. All right. We, so, while he's generating the random numbers, we'd like to thank all our supporters on Patreon. You guys uh, are definitely helping keep the podcast going. We appreciate the support, and it feels good to, uh, get companies like Bear Archery Products uh, involved and getting some product to give away to you guys. So we thank everyone involved. All right. The winner of the Bear 59er is Matthew Sinisak. I hope I pronounced that correctly. Congratulations. Yeah, he, uh, he signed up for Patreon with us, been with us since January 27th. So thanks for your support, man. We have... Um, Bear 59er. We also have one of our Patreon guys that had had one and sold it. So he has two brand new strings that I'm going to send you along with it. And, uh, you will be set up. We'll get your address and shoot you out that bow. Thanks everybody for supporting us. We're getting a lot of support on there, which is absolutely awesome. Helps us keep this thing going, get the wives off our backs. All that good stuff. Um, yep. Help us maybe get to some of these shoots. Uh, for you guys that are going to Compton, we kind of have some bad news there. We are not going to make it out to Compton this year. We, uh, Just not the cards for us no, this year. The plane tickets and between the plane tickets and the hotel and all that, we kind of promised our wives that we're going to try to cut back on dumping insane amounts of money into this this thing. So. Hopefully we can squeak out there next year. We're really going to miss it, man. If you guys have any chance to be able to go out there, it is just such a great time. The greatest people in the world. Could definitely say that out there, and we are truly going to miss it. But uh, Yeah. So try to make your ways out to Bering Springs, Michigan for the Compton traditional bow hunter rendezvous. Like I said, we won't be there, uh, but hopefully uh, we can make it next year. And if you guys aren't a member uh, to our only national traditional bow hunting organization, please sign up and sign your hunting party or hunting partner up today. Yeah. Heck yeah. Another little thing I want to bring up and we're going to get these guys on soon. Um, some of our buddies from Nevada, um, Tom Hubner, Chris Jasmine, they have started the, uh, Nevada traditional archers. The Trad Archers of Nevada, I think they're calling it. So super awesome to uh, see these guys start a traditional arch- archery organization in Nevada. They put in a ton of work and an insane amount of time. They 
you know, Tom shot me a text or he called me one day and he's like, Hey, I want to shoot my buddy. We're going to do this. And then like two weeks later, they're like sending me pictures of the website and, and, oh, so exciting. So those guys are, are uh, definitely putting in a lot of work and, uh, they got some great things coming. We're going to try to get them on once they get their website kind of dialed. But for right now, if you go to, um, Trad Archers of Nevada, and get signed up on their email list just to let them know that you are going to support them when they when it comes along here. I think they're trying to get it going here in the next month. So keep an eye out for that and uh yeah, give those guys some love on there. Get yeah. signed up. And if you guys missed this bow giveaway, don't you worry. We've got another bow giveaway coming up shortly. We've got some tough head broadheads. We got a a knife from Bear Archery Products. Um We've got a handful of uh, stuff uh, sitting here ready to give away to all our Patreon supporters. So yeah, we got some custom calls we got the other day. I mean, we got uh, some some homemade nose camo from a yeah. cool dude in Hawaii he hooked us up yes. with some of those. So we're just Spice. trying to spread it out a little bit and uh, helps us with the shipping costs if we only give one thing away every podcast. So it's awesome to have your guys' support. We really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you very much, and uh, enjoy this spectacular podcast with the mule deer master. Yo, there he is. Mike is <laughs> on the line finally. Sorry about that, man. Oh no, that's fine. Uh, you did a lot better than I would have done. <laughs> uh, Mike, you hooked to a computer. Well, yeah, we we got all these cables hooked to computers. James and I are not computer guys by any means so um usually we call the home phone and it works fine but for some reason it wasn't wanting to pick up your home phone i have no idea Uh, we don't have anything that screens any calls because i cuss so much on the phone screaming at people when they call that uh yeah believe me everybody gets through (laughs) (laughs) i mean all the telemarketers and stuff believe me they uh uh, they have free reign, but they pay for it. <laughs> awesome. Well, we uh, appreciate you going out and digging your cell phone that you, uh, out of your truck that you pay $2 a day use. So that's yeah. probably not an iPhone, I'm guessing. Uh, you guessed right. <laughs> it's a, it's one of them little flip phones. Oh, awesome. Awesome. Yeah. Um, and, and, uh, I don't even know how to get my messages off of it anymore. So. Uh, for anyway, yeah, it, it's a it's a antiquated now by by all means. Awesome. Well, Mike, we've been uh, hounding you to get you on here for I don't know a year or better now, and uh, <laughs> we finally talked to you on the right day. And those of you that uh, listen to our podcast, unless you're from Wyoming or Montana, you probably don't know who Mike Barrett is, but. Uh, there's probably not another working class human on the planet that has bow hunted as much as him. I mean, I, I think we can say that for sure. So it's an honor to have him on here. It, I, I don't get nervous for these very often anymore, but I'm nervous. So I put on, uh, I put on one of my leafy jackets after talking to you the other day, Mike. So I'm, I'm in spirit right now. I got my, uh, leafy camo on and, uh, we're going to get into, some of your favorite species to hunt. We know it's a mule deer, of course, but before we dig into all that, maybe you could just, uh, for those guys that don't know 
who Mike Barrett is, maybe give just a little history rundown and how you got started in bow hunting. Oh, golly. Uh, probably, it would have been in high school. I had friends that uh, uh, bow hunted, if you want to call it that. It consisted of driving around in cars and shooting at deer, which was, if I ever saw anybody do that now, I'd kick their butts. But uh, anyway, that was in 66, and so um, just got hooked, and, and then, you know, within a few years, compounds had come out, and and I was the only guy that, that never made the leap back to compounds. Um, so it just started going, and I started having a little success. And then life rolls on, and then pretty soon here you are. So uh, I've always shot a recurve. Last year I shot a longbow, uh, killed a deer with a longbow, and and uh, killed my first animal from a tree stand, first pope and young animal from a tree stand. So... Uh, you know, that was a, a little milestone there. So, anyway, here we are. I guess Mike, it's never are, too late to try something new, huh? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Are, are <laughs> well, you? it isn't like I tried something new. I have sat in tree stands so much, it is embarrassing how many years and hours I've put in tree stands. And uh, uh, I, I never shot an arrow from a tree stand until last year. Well, I never shot an arrow. Uh, I shot an arrow out of a tree and killed a deer, but not from a tree stand. So a fine distinction, but anyway, that's the way it was. Are you from Wyoming originally, Mike? Or? Nope. I grew up in South Dakota. Well, I, I grew up in South Dakota. Um, actually started show, shooting a bow uh, back there in South Dakota in the 60s, and then uh, moved to Wyoming in 77. I ended up in the service in um, six, uh, 69, 70, 71, just for two years. And so uh, I uh, come over to Wyoming. Uh, a friend of mine was going to go bow hunting, a classmate, and, and the next weekend I moved over. I had nothing tying me down back there, and I just packed up and moved over and never looked back. That was just because the hunting was so good in Wyoming? Well, well yeah, uh, it was mountainous. You know, the, where I was was in the Black Hills, and so, it, you know, they're hills. But uh, over in the Bighorns, it's actually mountainous, and there were lots of elk, and, and I thought, mm, got to go. <laughs> <laughs> just moved over. I love it. That's Yep, yep, uh, absolutely did. I quit a good job and moved over here and started at four and a half bucks an hour as, as, uh, in construction. So, and that's what you've uh, that's what you've done your whole life construction. Well, I was a miner and a deputy sheriff, and oh um, well, yeah, that's about it. Mainly construction though for thirty some years. Yeah, awesome. So, working man that's killed um, how many Pope and Young? Deer and elk and antelope, right? I mean, you're pretty much hunt deer, elk, and antelope just about every year, right? Yeah. Um, I've killed, uh, hold on, uh, 37 muleys that book. Uh, I killed a couple other ones that I didn't like the way things ended up, so I never entered them. I, I've always believed that if, if you don't get the meat, you know, you shouldn't be too damn proud of it. Mm -hmm. um, if... Uh, 
uh, if the meat goes to waste, I lost one, so I didn't enter it. And then there was another one, a friend hit it too, and so I didn't enter it. But uh, the deer and then the elk, uh, uh, I think I've killed 19 Pope and Young elk, and I would like one more. I'd just like to have 20 just because I'm about done packing elk out. And I don't know, I've probably killed 10 or a dozen antelope maybe that book. So um, I, I have never even kept track of them, to be honest. Wow, that is incredible. And then some odds and ends. You know, I've got a couple doll sheep and caribou and stuff like that. So Oh, those are odds and ends, doll sheep and caribou. <laughs> I'd like some odds yeah. in my life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, they're, uh, uh, yeah, they're just, just a few of them sprinkled around through the years. So, yeah. so maybe you can, like, how, how were you able to hunt so much? Cause I know, you know, that's, that's, in, that's okay. just incredible. That was the key. Yeah. That, that was absolutely the key. And what I did, I had, uh, two bosses for the same company. And what the deal was, I would take two months a year off without pay, and as long as I came back, they were all right with that. And what would happen is I might take a month in September and a month in November, December or something, um, and as long as I came back, they would just flat out give me the time off I wanted. And and my wife always supported it, never cried about it a bit, um, uh, so... I I had the world by the tail when it come to that. Oh, that's that's, awesome. that's the reason I was able to do some of the stuff I did because it just takes so much time. And so I don't know as I'm any better than anybody else. I have just had way more time than most people. And so e- even a blind hog will find an acorn, you know, if you <laughs> leave him out there long enough. So 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 you you uh, picked a good boss and you married an angel. Uh, you could describe it that way. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, yeah, that's that's the key. The the wife has to approve. That definitely helps, and and especially when yep. you know when you're not a rich guy like all of us sitting here, and and it costs not only time but it costs money, gas money. You got to buy tags because you're not just hunting your home state. Obviously, if you killed that many deer. So, I mean, yep. that's all time away from the family, and if, if they're not buying into that, then you're not going to make it very far, that's for sure. Yep, we never had any kids, uh, so that, that was another thing that, uh, um, you know, I didn't, I didn't have to worry about is, is keeping um, food in a bunch of crumb crunchers, so um, <laughs> I was able to go. Yeah, awesome. that's, that's awesome. So, and, and Susan always had a real good job. Well, so she's, between she's quite the, two the bow of hunter us, too, right? I was able to twerk. Oh yeah, yeah. She's bow hunted for, pooh, uh, I don't know, fifteen or twenty years, I suspect. Yep. So by just hearing all this, I think we could talk for hours and hours. But what we would really <laughs> like to cover today is kind of like um, the evolution uh, of a, a mule deer hunter. Um, we know that that's kind of your favorite and we'd love to kind of hear how you got started in mule deer and how you learned along the way and, and, uh, some stories and, and some tips and tactics. Uh, if you wouldn't mind, we'd love to hear all about the mule deer. Yeah, it, uh, of course it's kind of a evolution, I guess. Uh, you've got to want to real bad. 
uh, uh, you know, I, uh, when I moved to Wyoming, well, uh, I killed my first Pope and Young Deer up in the Slim Buttes in South Dakota. Oh, golly, might have been at 76, I think. But I'd, I'd killed some other little muleys over there. And then when I moved to Wyoming, of course, then I had deer and elk. And I always would rather hunt a deer than an elk. Uh, there's way more glory in an elk. You know, people that kill big elk uh, seem to bask in it a little more than the guys that kill decent deer. But there's a, a lot better meat on an elk. But back then, you could get an elk tag every year in the bighorns. And, you know, um, so you felt funny if you didn't go after elk, but I always loved the deer, and I'd go over to western Wyoming over in the Salt River Range and hunt deer over there a lot. But then uh, it's funny how it goes because every year I go over there, there's volcanic activity, and the mountains got steeper and steeper every doggone year. So uh, <laughs> after a while, that kind of went away. So, but, uh, yeah, I don't know. I guess I've always just liked muleys, and, the key is uh, chasing them around all summer, all fall, and all winter um, with a camera. Because once you do that and you just take thousands and thousands of pictures, you learn what you can get away with. You learn how the wind blows. Uh, you know, it's kind of an overall education if you're out there a lot. And that's pretty much what it takes. So... So you you start, I mean, you obviously you live in an area you're hunting. And so those areas you are hunting, you're, you're out photographing the wildlife year-round. And I've heard from guys the pictures you've taken are incredible. But, uh, I mean, was it always like that? I mean, if you, when you were working, I mean, you, you were probably pretty busy trying to keep everything rolling because you are going to take off for two months. Um, how did you go about, you know, picking the other states when you started hunting multiple states? Well, first it was uh, 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 Montana. I, we only live like seven miles from Montana, so that was kind of a no-brainer. Um, and you could you can pretty much always get a, a, a non-resident combination. You, you may not always get the elk part of it, and it costs a lot of money, but it's close. You know, I can be up there and, and hunting in an hour uh, you know, where I do go hunting. So. That was a no-brainer. And then I had two friends. Um, they'd been hunting Colorado, and so they invited me. So I went down there, and they've both since long quit that. And so I'm the only one that goes down there. So I would have Wyoming, Colorado. And then years and years ago, a game warden friend in western Wyoming had told me about Idaho. And so I started over there in eastern Idaho, and I think I've hunted there with the exception of two years for like 26 years. I've killed three deer in 26 years. So it makes you question what in the hell you're doing when you have that incredible success rate. Um, uh, when you go over there every year and spend a couple of weeks in the motel, and or three weeks in the motel sometimes after I retired, and uh, all the gas and food and everything, and you come home without a deer just year after year after year. So the potential is there for a gagger, though. Yeah. And that's that's what keeps me going back. There are some good deer running around, but it's kind of weather dependent. To some of it. Mm-hmm. So, but I don't care. I, I have nothing else to do. Then I may as well be hunting deer. 
Yeah. <laughs> That's the one place where I was sitting a tree stand until I thought my friggin' feet were going to develop claws on them. Um, and and uh, there were a few deer I should have shot, but I just uh, always thinking something nicer might come along. Yeah. So so for those guys listening. You spend some time out there. To, you've earned your deer, that's for sure, it sounds like. Uh, yeah, it wouldn't surprise me if I have way more time in per deer than any human, <laughs> which which leads you to believe I'm kind of a dud. But I, I do spend enough time that uh, uh, it uh, it all worked out for me. Yeah, that that's incredible. So three, it sound- three deer in 26 years. So it sounds like you're hunt- hunting mule deer uh from August all the way into December um to tell us a little bit starting with early season into late uh maybe how your tactics change and what uh is ideal for you like when when do you feel is you know if you had to choose some of those dates would, would you like them in the velvet is that a easier not easier but is that a more preferable way to um to pattern them, well, to like them in the rut? Um, well, no. Um, I'll, I'll hunt a deer anywhere, anytime. But the easiest is, is out in the prairie. Now, here in Wyoming, up in north-central Wyoming, there isn't a lot of public land. There's, a, there's several, there are a lot of little pieces that are like a section. But you can blow through a section in a couple of hours if, if, if you know how it lays and what may or may not be around. Uh, on the mountain, like in the bighorns, uh, our deer have went in the toilet so bad, it's it's almost not worth going up there, although uh, I did find a, a good one last year, but up in the spruce, there, you, uh, you really don't have much of a chance. I mean, with all the spruce, thing, uh, spruce uh, branches and, and spruce needles on the ground, you know, a, a deer will hear you coming from a long ways away. And once... You're in the mountain, you might know where there's a good deer, but you may not see him for a week. Because if you don't go down that draw or over that hill, you know, by, by mid-morning he's gone and, and you cannot look around very much unless you have picked a spot where you have really good vantage, like in big burns or some, a lot of big parks. But, but so much of it is, uh, those deer get shot off pretty hard with rifle hunters. So the bigger deer would tend to be in the, the let's say, thicker stuff or rougher stuff where it's, it's uh, a little harder for uh, hunters to kill those deer. So they may grow up one or two more years, and, and it might be something you're after. But, but out in the prairie is by far the easiest. Uh, of course, the, the key to that is having enough area to hunt, and there's got to be good deer there. So... Uh, the only way there's going to be good deer there is they don't get shot in rifle season. So you, you may end up on private land somewhere, or else you need to hunt the fringes of private land where they don't kill every deer. So and and try and catch the overflow onto the public. So it's, I mean, you, you can find a good deer anywhere sometimes, but. You, only on private land will you find good deer all the time if the landowner manages it right. But those areas are real hard to get on. So, so you might you might hunt the edges of it and, and hope for uh, uh, one of them to be stupid, or or if you do have a landowner friend, 
then uh, then you're golden. Um, you know, you, you can you can look it over a lot. You know what's there. Um, you know how they act, and then you're you're good there. That's the easiest way to to kill a, a mule deer is is uh, on the prairie um, when they when they go to bed underneath cut banks or in little patches of uh, choke cherries or something like that. Okay. So let me ask you a kind of a selfish question for myself. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I'm planning on hunting uh, mule deer this year uh, here in Oregon. Our season opens, I think, August 24th, uh, runs through September 22nd this year. Um, I think the bucks are in the velvet for probably around t- September 1st. Is that around? You think that's about right, Bob? Yep. Around September 1st. Um, so I'm trying to choose dates. And, and initially I was, uh, so we're high desert, 7,500 feet. Uh, some burn area. It's all sagebrush. The burn area has created that cheat grass. You got some mahogany points, some steep, rocky stuff, uh, canyons, cliffs, you know, typical high desert Oregon. Uh, what? Okay. And, and I got eight, nine, ten days to go hunt. Do I go in there, uh, opening week, uh, show up a couple days early before anyone gets after them? And go after the velvet bucks? Do I wait until they're hard-horned? Uh, do I wait till the end of the season when the elk are bugling and no one wants to be in that country? Um, what What would you do um, in a situation that I'm uh, in? It, uh, well, I don't know what kind of weather you have there, there, but pay attention to that. The other thing is, which way is the predominant wind? I mean, uh, for example, in this area, is your predominant wind out of the south or west or wh- which way does it usually come from? Well, that's, that's a great question. Um, well, the, the reason I ask is because, uh, if, if you keep finding deer that, that are bedding on the back side of a ridge and the wind is coming up the other side, when that wind comes over the top, it just swirls and eddies and you will play hell trying to get in on a deer. Whereas if you can find deer that bed on the other side where the wind is coming up slope, that's a piece of cake. Now, if that's on the south slope, generally you don't find deer bedding on a south slope and it's in, unless it's in really thick, uh, some really thick timber or something or little stands of, of something because it's so warm. So number one, Try and concentrate on which way the wind is predominant so you will be going downhill onto a deer that, that is obviously facing downhill if he's laying in the bed and you have the wind in your face. That's number one. And in order to scout that deer, you've got to go to the ridge opposite of that and glass over, whether it's a half a mile or a mile. Uh, you need to do your homework and, and find a good deer, a couple of good deer, good habitat where you can glass it from a long ways off, put them to bed, and then come around and come down on them. That would be the what I would consider to be ideal. I've never been in that country, but I think I know what you're talking about. Yeah, it's, um, and I think water it, may be an issue. Yeah, and, and I that? guess I guess one of my questions is 
it seems to be, I don't have a lot of experience with mule deer because they, we don't have them where I live. I live on the Oregon coast. I'm in blacktail country, but it seems that, uh, hunting them in the velvet is a really popular thing, but I do know that when they're in the velvet, they're in pretty large groups. Do you, do you prefer to go after them in the velvet when they're in these big groups or do you like to wait till they're hard horned or does that really matter to you? It wouldn't make a hooter holler to me. Uh, if they're in a group, when they bust up, uh, they still aren't going to disperse miles or anything. They're going to be in the same country. Obviously, it's harder to sneak up on, on six or eight deer than it is one. But um, it depends on how big a deer you're after. I mean, if you're satisfied with half of the deer in the group, then it's a no-brainer, go. But if there's only one deer in that group, uh, it might be better if they kind of bust up at the, about when they, they shed their velvet um, or, you know, some of them still pal around together even after they're hard horn, but, but about then is when they, they kind of break up a little bit. Okay. So, yeah, that would be a personal personal choice, of course. I would go after them all day, every day. <laughs> but if you if you only have seven or eight days, um do you ever get a bunch of snow at that time in September? No, no. Okay, so you don't have a bunch of snow to contend with where it might move them. Well, then um, uh, they're way more visible in velvet. You know, they stay out longer. Uh, their coats are red. You know, before the coats turn gray, you can spot them a lot better. Um, if, if there's any way you can... Um, if there's any way you can get in there before season, like August, any time in August and see where they're hanging, generally they'll be in the same general area um, come September. So, um, you know, preseason is is everything. Uh, Just wading into an area and, and trying to kill a deer is really hard unless you have done your homework and tried to uh, uh, see where some of these deer are and how they're acting and, and see, in particular how the wind blows what is the predominant wind and is it going to change in September you know the, like here in the bighorns a lot of times it'll be out of the south and then toward later September we get these clippers that come through and pretty soon your wind is out of the northwest so if the deer are over the top of ridge you need to pay attention as to how this wind is blowing, even even out in the prairie, it's the same thing. I, I probably killed my biggest deer. Um, one time I, I had a really nice deer not too far from here, and the wind was just terrible, but we had a big storm coming through, and then the wind switched out of the north, and I thought, I need to get out in the prairie, and I went out there and actually murdered my uh, my biggest deer ever because the wind had switched out of the north because out there... The deer will bed in the shade, which is on the north side of anything that provides shade, whether it's a cut bank or a few, some brush or trees or whatever. They will be bedded on the north side of it. So if you get a north wind, you come over from the south and you're on top of them. Anyway, I went out there and, and the wind really didn't matter too much that day just because of the way it happened to be, but I ended up, uh, killing my best deer because I took off when I knew the wind had changed. 
because now I was out of the north after that storm. So. Did you did you know about this buck, and could you give us the kind of play by play on how this uh, how this hunt went down? Well, what happened was it was on a private ranch, and and the lady had said I could hunt, and so that year I went out several whole bunch of times, and there were three decent deer there, no, no gaggers, but three decent deer. And in fact, one day I watched a a big three-point chase a bobcat up a tree, which was pretty cool, but it was just hotter than blue heck when that happened, but I was out there watching them. Anyway, so I thought, well, I'll run out there and see if I can snag one of these deer. And when I got out there, and it was a real cool morning, and I had looked across a, a prairie dog town, there were two deer laying there, and I went, wow, one was a spike, and the other one was a whopper. And so I looked, and I thought, well, gosh, uh, in the scope, and I thought, he's got velvet hanging off each side. Well, then I got to looking better, and it was actually non-typical points hanging off each side. So I thought, this thing is a screamer. Uh, anyway, I went around, uh, had to wade around one or two of them other bucks, as I recall, got into a little stand of ponderosa pine, and here come the spike, and he stood there stomping his foot at me, but he didn't st- snort. And the big buck just walked right by him, right kind of down below me. And that that other buck was standing there stomping his foot. I couldn't believe it. And the, the, the big one walked by, and I thumped him. And he went a little ways, and down he went. He laid down. Well, then the spike ran by the big buck, and he pulled him, and they went way down in the draw bottom. And the, the, the property line was there, and I thought, oh, no, I hope you don't go into that other property because I didn't have permission there and didn't know the guy. Anyway, so uh, deer went down. He shot about through the liver. I, I think I shot him at 22 yards, if memory serves me right. Anyway, so finally I could see him in the bottom, and I got the scope on him, and I thought he was dead. And then, So I gathered up my scope and got ready to go. He's a couple hundred yards, and, and I looked down. His head was up, and I thought, uh-oh, well, he was in the tailwaters of an old dam. Uh, an old, it was a dry dam in a bunch of weeds there, and I, I got over, and I I thumped him again at about 10 yards, and that was the end of that. But I was able to drive the four-wheeler to him because it was private land and get him loaded up, which helped me because it was really hot. And uh, anyway, it was just I killed him because I knew the wind had switched out of the north, and I thought I'd have a better chance out there than, than where I was. So, and he was in the velvet? No, he, he was hard-horned, in that I believe that was September 11th. Okay. As, as I recall, generally, it seems like the bigger bucks will, will, will rub out a little later than the, the the smaller bucks. But, you know, you see them all different times, but he was hard horned, yes. Did he have uh, uh, just, he was a non typical, I'm assuming you said he had some extra points down, uh, drop times or. Um... No, he had uh, like a six inch sticker basically straight out each side uh and i th- i think he's a, a nine by ten if i remember right um and he's uh, uh his main frame was as i recall 194 his main frame and then he had like oh oh gosh how much junk i think he had like 36 inches of junk so yeah he was a he was a screamer and I did not know that deer was there, but I believe I almost got him the year before because he's real tall, fairly narrow, 
and the year before he had one sticker. And I, I was right in the same area, and he had uh, he was coming down to me in, in a, a bit of a rain, and he caught me and, and blew out of there. But I, probably the same deer, and I, I may have had that in the back of my mind when I was in there. But but anyway, it was a it was a really nice day. It turned off hot, had north wind, and anyway, everything just worked. So yeah. So, what what are some he, of the uh, things maybe that you notice on those? those big bucks because you've killed several of them you know over 200 i know and i mean what are some of the tendencies for those real giant bucks the old ones that you're hunting a lot i mean maybe you can tell us some of the stories on those deer well believe it or not they're stupider than than does uh they will um uh i'll tell you you want to practice you practice on a doe it's harder to sneak up on a doe than it is a buck um, some of the bigger bucks don't pay attention to a lot of stuff that does and little bucks do. They're just, they're too confident, I think, sometimes. It sounds contradictory, but, but when I'm sneaking up on deer and taking pictures, uh, you know, a rock will roll or something, they don't pay attention, nothing. Whereas a doe, she's going to be on high alert. Because uh, she's got a fawn to protect and protect herself. I mean, she doesn't have anything to fight off a predator, like you know, like antlers. But I've always thought that that some big bucks are just too cocky for their own good, and it'll get them killed. Huh? Yeah, I never so, heard that. No. Well, yeah, it's. Uh, yeah, that's that's at least been my experience. And that's the other thing I need to say is. I don't know everything, and some people will disagree with everything I say. Some people disagree with some of it, but we're not all the same. So, uh, you know, if we, if we talk about the way I shoot a bow or the way I hunt or anything, it, it, it might be different than you do. It may not work for you, but it, it works for me, and that's where i got to leave it. I'll tell you what works for me and what my experiences are, that don't mean it's going to work for you because there's so many different situations and 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 uh, different types of terrain and habitat. You know, one statement doesn't cover it all anyway at all. Sure. So, so it, it sounds like hot and windy is ideal, but but what happens in that time of year when you run into thunderstorms, rain? Um, you encounter this uh, uh, diverse weather. Um, how do you change your tactics um, accordingly? Well, I killed my biggest typical in an absolute downpour, um, but the wind was just screaming. It had just got done hailing like crazy, and I think I shot that deer at 11 yards. Uh, that was in the mountains over in the Salt River Range in western Wyoming. And so uh, he was just, I, I was watching him down in a bunch of little spruce. It was kind of intermittent spruce. And they were moving around a little because it was storming. And and uh, as I got down there, he, I'm trying to remember if he, he just kind of walked by me. And, and I, I shot him. And he ran uphill. And pretty soon here he come back downhill stumbling. He tipped over right in front of me. But I had accidentally almost cut a small spruce tree in half with a broadhead. But it still it still went through the deer. Um, it was probably a, a one inch tree, 
And when I touched the top of it, it just fell over the broad-headed. He was coming through some a little bit of thick stuff, but but uh, you, you just have to pay attention. And uh, number one, you got to have the wind right. Nothing else matters other than that wind, and it can't be iffy. You can't be on the backside of a ridge and and uh, start working down in there and feel that wind going every which way. You might be able to take a chance, uh, but if you blow him out, you might not see him again for several days or maybe never. So trying to get the wind right is always the hardest part of, of killing a mule deer on the ground. So, um, so hunting in those areas that get some pressure, I know in Oregon and I think a lot of areas now, the problem is too many bow hunters a lot of time. But, uh, mm-hmm. you know, say you are hunting an area and it's prairie country, you know, and you do, the bucks do get bumped. Um, uh-huh. how far are they usually going to go? I know it probably is all dependent on terrain, but I mean, is there still a chance? Are you, say you bump the buck you're after, are you going to keep hunting that buck? And how far do they it, usually it, go? Yeah, well, it will depend if you scare him on purpose or you scare him accidentally. And if he gets a snoot full of you or not, I mean, if he gets a snoot full of you and knows it's a human, he can't see you, that scares him. Because they know life may be short, and they they may move quite a ways. Um, I've had deer before I bumped, I bumped bad, and then never see them again. And so part of the key is to uh, try not to ever bump them. But sometimes I'll bump them on purpose, and that might be um, if if one is bedded in a spot where it isn't going to work, and I don't mind bumping him because I know nobody else is around. Sometimes I'll just stand up at a couple hundred yards and kind of wave my hand back and forth. And then just, you know, so he only sees maybe my head and my hand. And wave that hand and get down and then just kind of keep peeking. And he may just lay there, but after a while he's going to get nervous and he may get up and move somewhere else that is a better situation. Um, so sometimes you move them on purpose. And not too often, but... Often enough, it's one of those things that will will help you. Maybe he might may go to a better spot where you can thump him. Huh. So good stuff. Um, well, sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. You know, it's uh, it's like rattling. I, I figure four out of five deer, you just scare the snot out of them <laughs> when you rattle. But it's, it's the one that you don't that, that may come in that might make it worth it. But you got to be willing to spook them first before you ever try it. Yeah. So if, if you're not willing to spook him, don't try it. If there's a bunch of other people around or, or he may disappear, if it's in really, really heavy stuff or you may never see him again, uh, then it wouldn't be worth it to, to, to make the attempt. Now, when you, when you're stalking bucks, I know like we just did one with Kelzer. We'll try to put these out kind of back to back to really get guys the mule deer bug going. But a lot of guys, and I think Kelzer fits in this area is like he's not going to make the stock until everything's perfect. And when I say perfect, like they're bedding the right stop spot, the wind's perfect. And like, are you, 
since you hunt all day, you know, you're hunting every day and you're hunting through August and September and October and November and even into December, there's a lot of times I know, I mean, it's obviously best to have them bedded under a rock or, I mean, what are the times in that early season when you're going to go after a deer when it is maybe feeding or is there a time? Are you always waiting for that, you know, static situation where it's bedded down or, or, uh, are, is there times when you're going to go after them when they're moving from bedding to feeding and all that stuff? It could be if it's really rough and you have a good wind, then I would try it about any time. If, and, and especially if there's just one deer or maybe just two, but if you have four or five deer, your odds go way down because one of them little crappy little two points is going to pick you off every time because they're going to wander away from the mother buck sometimes and just catch you when you aren't expecting it. They may turn around and go back and you're, you're concentrated forward and boom, one of them's got you and then the whole works blows up. But if, if it's rough enough where you think you'll have a good stock and the wind is correct, then about any time you can go. It is nice to know exactly where they're at, and they will probably stay there for a while. Uh, number one, he's got to be faced the correct way. Um, you know, sometimes they're they're faced wrong, or the only way you can come over is a quartering on shot. Well, that's not going to work. So now you've got to go around 90 degrees to get to a quartering away shot, or at least a broadside shot, but down off of a bank or uh, a little cliff or something. Um uh, the situation will dictate to what you think you can do, um, but you got to think about it. you got to think, well, when I get there, what angle am I going to have? Is it too straight down? Is it is it too level? Am I only going to get one long? Um, all that stuff you got to think about. And uh, uh, one of the main things is, invariably, if, if you're going to come over on a deer, and he is laying in the shade, your shadow is going to go out in front of him. And they know what that shadow is. Uh, they they are not stupid about shadows. If if you peek over the hill and, and your head comes up, and then you've got to raise your bow, uh, they are going to unass the area right now. So you've got to be careful with your shadow. Because that's when it works the best, is, is when... They're off on that north side. The wind is out of the north, so it's right in your face, and you're coming over from the south. Well, that's where your shadow is going down. So you may or may not have to get to one side or the other and go extremely slowly so they don't watch that shadow um, when when you're coming right over on top of them. Yeah, that makes sense. So so say you do sneak up on a buck. And you're, you're 15 yards and he's in some sage brush or some buck brush or something and, and you just see his rack, you know, you don't have a shot. Are you uh-huh. gonna wait him out? Are you gonna throw rocks? What, what's the tactic Mike would use? Well, generally I've thrown enough rocks I could fill a pickup and I've yet to kill a deer that I threw a rock at. So, um, they, a lot of times in the mountains, if you throw a rock, they don't think anything of it. They wouldn't get up if you hit him right between the eyes with one. Um, but now in the prairie, they don't hear rocks rolling. And when they come out of that bed, they're already going to be at about 30 mile an hour. So that doesn't work. Um, generally, 
if, if I can get close and I do not have a shot, I will get back out, go around to where I can, I can watch him. And there will be times when uh, you just got to back out and leave him. Uh, I had one deer, um, I just looked it up. This deer was just over 190, but you would never guess it. He was a short little rack, but he had a bunch of little points on him. And I, I, I think I saw him five out of seven days, and I think, well, it might have been five out of eight, something like that. Anyway, I think five days, I never made a move toward him. I would watch him, and he was always in a bad spot, or else he had other deer with him. And so for those days, I just backed out and went home. You know, I'd watch him almost all day, and then the wind would die down about four or five o'clock, and then you're done. There's no reason to even stay there and risk uh, him seeing you or other bucks seeing you and snorting and blowing around, that kind of stuff. But on the last day, he had bedded on a, uh, a absolute open hillside. There were deer across the draw, so there was nothing I could do. And finally, it got hot, and the other deer moved off about 400 yards. So I, I got in with about, I suppose I was uh, about 60 yards from him. And I started crawling, and I crawled within about 30. And in the meantime, he was just laying out in the sun, and he had tucked his head down, you know, by his chest. And I think he actually fell asleep. I never saw his ears wiggle or nothing. He never flipped his tail. And so when I got to about 30 yards, I stood up. I had my boots off. And the sage, this was literally like <laughs> walking across your lawn. The highest bush was maybe six inches, little tiny scrub sagebrush. And when I got to what I thought was 20 yards, I thought, well, you better do it. So uh, I thumped him, and he jumped up and ran down the hill and crashed and burned. And uh, But the wind was so light, a lot, uh, most of the way I'd just stand still, and I'd get a little puff of breeze out of the east, and so I'd, I'd take one little step and and I just kept doing that, that 10 yards from 30 to 20. And I, I ended up measuring, it was 21 yards. You know, I, I measure stuff with my bow. And I shot him at 21 yards. And But that was a case where you almost no wind. But finally, I, I had him by himself. And if he all he would have to do is raise his head and not have been done because he'd have seen me. But I just got lucky that sometimes you, you got to, know when to take the chance and when not to take the chance. And for almost a week before that, I wasn't satisfied with any chance. So patience. just an example, I guess. Yeah, heck yeah. It takes a lot of patience to wait for seven days. That's for sure. Well, well it does. And if you don't have, if you don't have the time, <laughs> let's say that's your vacation, you know, you either got to find a different deer or maybe you need to move him. But if if you've got other private land there, a big deep canyon, that may not be an option. You just got to weigh your um, your possibilities. The other thing in a case like that is to to wave at those other deer on that hillside and move them, get them out of there without scaring the other deer. You, you know, do something to make them nervous without realizing you're hermit, a human, just to, to get them out of there. So now you have that deer by itself. And that's that's what. I, I didn't move those deer. They just happened to move because it started getting hot in the morning, and, and they just left. And I don't know why this idiot laid there, but uh, <laughs> it was to my advantage. He was cocky. 
So okay, what's that? He was cocky. Oh. You said they get arrogant. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They do. They yeah, they, they get overconfident because yeah. they're a big bad buck. Yeah, that makes sense. So, so when you get, you're saying if you get close enough and that buck's laying there and you don't have a shot at it laying down, right. rather than risk the wind, even if you got a steady afternoon wind, I, I mean, are you going to wait hours for him to stand up or are you backing out and trying to come in from a different angle where you can get a shot at him bending down, just so I understand? Yeah, each situation might be different. If I am over a cut bank or a little rocky ledge or something, and and all I have is me peeking over, I'll stand there all day as long as the wind is good. Now, if... If that deer is like laying in some sagebrush, and if he just turns his head a little, he is. And I'm standing, I'm standing up like a fence post on the skyline right behind him. The jig is up; he's going to be gone. Poof! No questions asked. He's out of there. They know what that is. And when that brush is close to that deer, and he turns and he looks through that brush, he can see excellent although you can barely see him because the brush is right up against him. But if you ever go to the other side of some brush and look through it, you can see through it great. You know, and you can see a person standing there. Well, he knows that thing shouldn't be there, so he'll be gone. So every situation might be different. But the one thing I've always said is imagine what that deer can see from where he is. If you two traded places, what could you see where he is laying at. If he was to turn his head a little bit, could he see you? So if you're over that little bit of a bank and you're just peeking over, you're good. But if you if you're silhouetted, you're screwed big time. Because yeah. he knows you, you that don't belong there w- within 15 yards of him. That that is he will just rocket out of that bed if he if he sees you. Yeah, I think. But you I always think, gotta. Yeah. I think for me it's. And I think James, we've talked about this too, is I've gotten, I've had good luck getting, getting there, getting to 20 yards, getting to 25 yards, but there's always, I always screw it up at that time <laughs> somehow, <laughs> you know, that's, yep. and, and I, and, and it, you know, I had that problem with elk for a long time, you know, with the recurve, you know, it's just mm-hmm. like, finally you get, you get in that zone and you, and you gotta, and I don't even know what changed. It's just, you just realize what, when to shoot, when to move, when not, and it's, and it's been working great now. I don't screw it up as much anymore. And I think I'm yeah. just not there with the mule deer yet. That's why I'm asking all these questions. Cause I get there and then for whatever reason, maybe I've had bucks where I have waited. But what I did, I look back now, my mistake was I was in a hurry. And so I went in at 11, you know, instead of waiting until two in the afternoon when the wind was more steady. And I, and yep, I got in there at 11 and then I waited for an hour, you know, 25 yards from a, you know, beautiful 180 buck just waiting. I'm like, I'm gonna, I got you. I got you. But he was, he was bedded, you know, behind a couple piles of buck brush, you know, so all I could see was the tips of his rack, but um, he's, he's going to stand up eventually. And well, eventually he just caught my wind. <laughs> so that didn't work. Well, and I, yep. could, I mean, I could go on and on. Yeah. And usually the best wind is probably. 2.30 to 4.30, let's say, 2 to 4, something like that. That's when you get the best wind, uh, you know, unless it's storming or something. That That's your best thermal wind. 
you know, when it blows during the middle of the day. And but the, the number one, if if you stand there with that buck, and and you're waiting for him to stand up, when he stands up, is he going to see you? If you say yes, if you wasted your time because he isn't going to stand there and watch you shoot him. Usually, you are so close, you know, with traditional stuff uh, that he knows you don't belong there because you got this big old lump there that wasn't there before. He's been in that bed. 50 times over his life or 100 times, he knows what's around him. So if you're waiting for him to stand up and give you a broadside shot, uh, unless you have something right behind you and you're not silhouetted, uh, it isn't going to work. So uh, you, you, the ideal thing, uh, let's say you had some timber there, just peek around a tree and wait for him to get up because when he gets up, he's, he's usually going to pee and then he's going to stretch a little bit he may walk a little bit and stretch and then start feeding, but he's always going to look around first. He isn't like he just stands up and sticks his head in the ground and starts to feed. He is going to look look around and see what's going on. Yeah, that's so, good advice. That's very good advice. Every, every situation is going to be different, though. Yeah. So Because that, maybe there's a rock mistake. there. I made that mistake one time. I sat. I got about the same distance, 25 yards from a really nice buck. And I sat there all afternoon and I was sitting on rocks in my socks, like laying on the shale hillside base. It was so hot. Oh my God. It was so hot. Three <laughs> yeah. or four hours. And he was bedded under a little juniper. And then he had a smaller little buddy with him. And instead of when he finally stood up, instead of me, just like you said, if I would have just stayed sitting down, like, and just let him do his thing and then pick my shot, like I could have done it. But what I did is, as soon as he started to stand up, I was so excited. Here's my opportunity. So as he's coming up, I come up, and he stood up right under that tree. It was a steep hill, and you know how those junipers are. And he just stood up, and all I could see was his butt. And now his buddy's got me pegged, and I don't have a shot. And then they, his buddy takes off, and he takes off, and that was that was my day. <laughs> yep. Yep. So. Well, the good thing is you got a suntan. Yeah, that's for sure. That's for sure. <laughs> no, yeah, it's it's always fun sitting there in the sun or or laying. I'll usually lay down flat, let the deer get up if the situation uh, comes to that. And then once he starts to feed, now I'll try and get up. Of course, you throw another deer into the mix, you, you got problems. And uh, laying there in the sun, you got ants crawling all over you, which is fun because now you got to keep knocking them off of you. So you're moving around a little bit, or other bugs and spiders, or snake crawling up your pant leg, or some r- ridiculous thing you would never think of. And so, um, yeah, every situation is different, but you got to think it through. Yeah, you know, I, uh... think: uh, Is the sun going to come around too much? Am, am, you know, in 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 a half an hour, am I going to be out in the sunshine when I'm in the shade right now? And I think I'm camouflaged pretty good. In a half an hour, is that sun going to be around there and shining right straight in my face? And he's going to see me. Uh, you, you got to pay attention to how, what's coming up. Is the wind going to start to die? Um, it just comes to. A, a, I mean, it sounds funny to say, but you got to do a lot of thinking. And the main thing is what. Can that deer see from where he is? Because if he stands up, the only thing he can't see is exactly behind his head. Now, if you're a little above him, when he stands up, his ears block his eyes. 
out a ways if you're if you're above him and behind him his ears block his peripheral vision but you got to be up a little bit for that to work you know on a, on a muley yeah you you'd mentioned the snakes i uh i'll share a quick one i uh had, i found these two four point bucks they look like twins they were probably in that 170 class nice mature bucks two of them together and they were both bedded under these two um uh, mahogany trees and there was all this rock all around them and I did this long long stalk where I had to go out like a mile in the wrong direction and I had to work my way up and around on them and I was really taking my time moving through these rocks these big big rocks to get to them and I finally got into about 20 yards on them and they were behind the tree in these dugout deer beds that I couldn't shoot into so I yep. started trying to wait them out and then I start hearing a rattlesnake. And I'm like, oh, you've got to be kidding me. So I kept trying to move myself around a little bit. And it kept getting closer and closer. And soon I had this young baby rattler moving to the rocks right next to me. And I, I couldn't take it anymore. And I just stood up. And I had a buddy who was way up on the ridge who flagged me into these bucks. And when I stood up, those bucks ran off and he, it took me like 45 minutes to get back up to him. And he was so mad. He was like, are you, what are you doing? Are you an idiot? <laughs> and I told him about the rattlesnake yeah. and he's like, who cares about a rattlesnake? I'm like, you don't understand. It was like right there in the rocks with me. Yeah. I don't, I don't do too well with the rattlesnakes, but yeah, I was so close. And then the rattlesnake showed up. So yeah, you never know what's going to happen. Yeah, it'll be something. You know, you might have a coyote come wandering by, uh, just out of the clear boot, just wandering along. He see and run, and he'll take them deer with him, or another doe, or uh, if there's anything can go wrong, it damn sure will at one time or another. And so you you just got to have that attitude that this ain't going to work, but I'll do my best because what ninety five percent of stocks, you know, are not going to result in the dead deer. Uh, they're going to result in you being mad and the deer being happy, and that's just the way it is. Yeah, before we get into the late season stuff, um, speaking on that, how many, what's your average on stocks you take that don't work out? Oh, goodness. Uh, well, mo when you say workout, do you mean a dead deer, yep. or I get within twenty yards, or I mean, uh, I mean a dead deer. Oh, so for us guys that fail at it a lot, I want to. This is selfish for myself. For when I'm out yep. there this fall, and I've screwed up stock number six, I want to know. Like, have a little <laughs> compute in my head. Well, it takes Mike six stocks, so it'll take me at least double that. So I I got twelve more to get in. Like, what's your average? I. Uh, you know, I couldn't tell you. Um, let's see, stocks. Uh, see, I usually don't go unless it's it's pretty much a slam dunk. Usually, now now this year I was on a really nice buck. He was in a a, a wonderful little uh, one of the best deer beds you ever see in your life, and unbelievably, you can see this deer bed from a county road, and. Anyway, I ended up within about oh, 10 or 12 yards, as I recall, but there was no way to get an arrow through that sagebrush down there. 
So I tried the old rock trick, and, and when he was at about 50 yards, I thought, well, that probably didn't work the way I wanted it. And so, um, but I would, I don't know. I generally wait until it is pretty much a slam dunk. Uh, now, j- just FYI, in that situation, there is now a hole through that sagebrush into that deer bed. When I get to those places, I may never see that place again, but I will knock a little hole through there like eight inches square or something where I can run an arrow down through there uh, if I ever get there again with a nice deer. Uh, what does it hurt? It takes you like five minutes to cut a little hole through that mess. And so if you ever get there again, it, it may result in a dead deer. Have, have but as far that? as a have percentage... You be- have you done that before where you've you've cut a hole and gone nope. back later and killed a buck? Nope, not that I not that I've ever remembered, but the hole is there. If I ever do, <laughs> even when I find deer beds, I will think, could I get an arrow into this deer bed? I mean, it takes you a couple of minutes. I always carry a little one of the, a little tiny saw with me where you can cut these little saplings and stuff, cut them out of there, knock them weeds and grass out. And maybe next year it's grown over. I don't care. I have nothing else to do if I'm there. I may as well do it. Is not. I, like I mean, it. it's one in a million chance, but uh, it might be the chance that works for you. So I always cut a little hole there um, from where I think I would end up. Uh, usually it's within about 15 yards. Um, I, I try and pick out where the logical place to come down on him would be. Uh, so... I can't remember so, what the question was. So, so <laughs> let, let me ask you this. Oh, uh, the number you... of stocks. I, I absolutely have no idea. Um, I make a lot of stocks, and, and sometimes you'll just sneak up on deer uh, just for the practice, see what they do, see how quick they hear you. Uh, it just gives you more and more and more experience. Uh, so when the one that matters happens, you have a much better understanding of, of – uh, what he will hear, what he will see, will you, the shadow affect you? Is the wind good or bad in the bottom of the draw? Um, is the grass too crunchy? Is the snow too squeaky? You have nothing to lose by stalking other ones unless you're going to scare them and he scares a big one. So, But usually that doesn't happen. Have you ever had it play out? I mean, it seems like... Uh... Typically, we're wanting to get on top of them, but have you ever moved in from the bottom and had a shot upward or, or came you know, up onto a point and got under them uh, and, and made it work for you? Yes. One time in Alberta, a friend of mine wanted to go up to Alberta, so we went, and we chased deer around for a day or so, and we told him, hey, we're from Wyoming. We need some wind. Well, the next day, the wind was blowing like 50 miles. I don't know if it was blowing 50, but it was blowing hard. It might have been 30, 40 mile an hour, but it was extreme. And the deer were bedded down, but the wind was still coming down. I, I went down a draw and started up a little side draw, and I shot this deer uphill because it was the logical way to do it. And so I, I do remember that one actually shooting uphill, um, you know, 99% of them are downhill. And sometimes what you can do, if you just do something radical like say, hey, and they are in such shock, they may stand up and just stare at you. Um, 
in, instead of doing a, or you know what these guys always grunt when the white tails are running away on TV, and I laugh my butt off when they do that, and the deer's like 70 yards away and going about 40 mile an hour, and they think he's going to stop. Well, who, gee, many creepers. Anyway, sometimes that will work is to, is to go, hey, or what are you doing there? And I've done that before, and they won't get up. But they're looking all around. They know if they stand up, something bad may happen. Um, it's just fun to figure out what they may or may not do. Now, I wouldn't do this with a great big buck, although I think I've tried that before, is to say, hey, what are you doing in an obvious human voice? And they either stand up and stare or, or just lay there and don't get up. It's just part of learning what they do. Yeah. So in this early season, can you tell us a little bit about, um, you know, what you like to wear as far as camouflage? Do you, 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 do you block your face up? Do you wear makeup? Do you, what kind of boots do you like? Do you take your boots off? Like, can you tell us a little bit about, uh, you know, what you're wearing and, and how you use it to your advantage while you're doing these stocking in the September hunt? Yeah, usually I just wear a T-shirt, just a camouflage T-shirt. Camouflage is so overrated, it isn't even funny. You know all these high-name uh, camouflage brands, and, and they, they'll have somebody wearing the camouflage, and they're advertising, and, of course, they find the perfect background for it to work on. Well, camouflage don't work for diddly if you're moving. I mean, you are a human. The one thing I do like, to, I mean, I do wear camo. But I, I like to wear one color of a top and one color of a bottom, or a different texture on top and a different texture on the bottom. It breaks you in half. You see people out with with all one brand of camo, and at 100 yards, it looks like a great big black blob walking across the hillside. But if you wear, like, leafy wear on the top of green and gray on the bottom, you know, uh, walking makes no difference. You're a human. It, it isn't going to make a difference. But if you're in the timber, it may like look like part of a stump on the bottom and part of a bush on top. I am sold on that, although I don't know in all my photos how many times I've done that, but it does work. I'm sold on leafy wear, uh, especially in cedars or pines, things like that. Even in sagebrush, the, the little flutter that uh, leafy wear provides you know you can see the wind moving whereas just cotton camo uh it looks like a guy wearing cotton camo so um boots uh i fell off a roof years ago and i shattered both my my heel bones in 16 pieces so i wear um really heavy leather boots to keep my my feet somewhat out of pain and they're they're mindle boots, and they're they're hot, but they work for me because they fit me perfect. And I do take them off from time to time to make a stock. Um, uh, one thing I will say: don't lose them, because I've done that a couple of times where I wandered around for 20 minutes looking for my boots, and that's pretty embarrassing if anybody is with you. But uh, I mean, yeah. Uh, sometimes I wear a head net, you know, a, a balalaka, but I've got to have 
all my face and my right ear exposed because of the way I anchor. When I come back, I have my, I got to have my middle finger in the corner of my eye, and so the rest of my hand has to be against my ear. I can't have a cap there. I've got to pull my cap back into the side if I'm getting ready to shoot. But I, I do believe uh, the the uh, the Bavilacker, the the, the face mask helps a bunch, but I don't wear paint anymore, although I, it, it certainly wouldn't hurt. But then you got to take it off at night, and, and uh, so I, I generally don't use face paint anymore. Let's see, what was the other thing? Let's see. Uh, what about, what about a, back, like a backpack or a fanny pack, or do you, are you taking stuff oh. in stock with you, or? Yeah, I, I'll t- I have a fanny pack, and we bought it. At, uh, uh, it was just kind of a generic fanny pack, and I am never satisfied with anything I get. My wife probably has five hours of sewing in that thing to get it the way I want it, and it's the way I want it. I carry a, a tripod with a spotting scope, and 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 then I carry more stuff than I probably need in the bottom, you know, I always care, carry some oxycodone for my feet. I'll take, uh, you know, some other little medications. Uh, oh, golly. Like, uh, oh, something if, if you just hurt a little bit. Or, I mean, bad enough where, where it hurts bad enough, you should take something. But I don't like taking oxycodone. I only take a couple of them a year. And that's usually when I get in a real bad situation. But uh, medication, fire. And, uh, you know, bowstring and glove and all that stuff. And then, uh, number one is a camera. I just take thousands of pictures every year. And I gotta have a camera, GPS, uh, you know, your knife, something to sharpen it with. You know, the general stuff everybody takes. You put all that into a fanny but, pack? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it's, uh, it's, uh, uh, the spot and scope is like, Two, two pounds, and this tripod's one pound, and that's what I have in the top. And then I have a bunch of other junk in the body. It weighs about 10 pounds when I'm done. And then you you got to put some water. You know, you got to have water and a couple of candy bars, something to to jack you up just a little bit in the middle of the day. Uh, and sometimes if it's hot, you know, you might have five or six bottles of water with you. So I'm Because a lot of times a- I'll... Li- it's got straps like a backpack, one of those type of fanny. Correct. Yeah, yeah. This has straps every show. The other thing, and that leads me to this, is I have to have a chest protector. Because as I've gotten older, my bow comes around further, and my bow string gets into the fabric on my shirts and my coats. So on the, the strap of the backpack on my left, because I'm right-handed, I have a piece of a chest protector. It's that heavy nylon mesh. So my string slides on it and doesn't grab it. Because if I don't wear that and I start shooting, all of a sudden I have an arrow off to the side, I know I caught the fabric on my uh, uh, coat. Same thing, i, I got to wear a, like a compression arm guard anymore to keep my coat out of the way. Because of, as I've got, like I say, when I got older, m- my bow arm comes around further I, I can't hold the bow out in front of me the way I used to, you know, a little bit. So uh, I've got to have some of that stuff. What about I, your what I about use, your binoculars? Do you do you take those on the stock with you, and do you have like one oh, yeah. of those chest well, harnesses or? 
nope, because I use pocket binoculars. And everybody thinks I'm crazy, but um, uh, they work fine for me. I have really good eyesight. Uh, knock on wood, uh, that the one thing in my, uh, I wish to, I had as good a brain as I have eyesight. But uh, I, I use little uh, um, Zeiss binoculars, little pocket ones. You just fold it. I keep them in my right pocket, my right chest pocket, away from my bowstring, of course. Like seven. That, that's all seven I use. Power, seven power. Seven by thirty. Oh no, these well. are ten. These are oh. ten. Really? They're they're ten power. Uh huh. Ten by. And see, I have my spot and scope. Oh, what are they? Ten by. <clears throat> They're just little guys. I, I couldn't yeah. even tell you. Yeah, They're out in the truck. But, yeah. yeah, what are they? 10 by 30s? 10 by... I don't know. But they're they're 10 power. Um, let's see. Yeah, I know they're Zeiss, yes. Because I, I bought some Swarovski, Zeiss, and uh, Leupold's, I think. And I just these just fit better. They fit my hands better, so that's what I use. Well, Bob's got some goofy-looking uh, hip pouch that his wife made him with a big green button on it that he puts his binoculars in. So. I made that thing. Oh. I, I don't like having that stuff around my neck either, so I made I made that. I sewed it up myself. <laughs> yeah. Well, sorry, well, Christy. Uh, I, I apologize. <laughs> I'm sure you would have done a better job. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you could always put them in a, a coffee can and nail that to your hip. Uh, That's not what uh, it looks like. <laughs> yeah. uh, now, these go right in my pocket and I have the the uh, uh, the cord around my neck but it doesn't pull on my neck because they're supported in my pocket and then I also have Susan sew a, a, a buttonhole in all of my pocket flaps and sometimes I just hook the, the binocular through that buttonhole and so if I bend over I don't lose them you know I always have them attached because oh, from time so to time your you're crawling around in the pocket. Yes, they're on my chest in in my breast pocket. Okay. And she has to make that because almost yeah, she always has to put that on all my coats and shirts because usually the pocket is on the other side. Okay. And so some have pockets on both sides, but I remove the pocket on on my uh, left chest because that's where my bowstring would get into it. Okay. And it's always pretty interesting when you catch the button on a shirt with your bowstring. It gives you for some interesting arrow flight. Mm. What about uh, camo in your bow? Do you camo your bow and your quiver? Oh, you ought to talk to the guys that have shot their bows. I use um, uh, uh, that uh, textured camouflage spray paint. Yeah, I'm sure uh, several guys have had heart attacks. Right? <laughs> oh, yeah, they love having their bow all spray-painted up. What I used to do is use spray paint, and I'd rub sand in it. How do you think they like that? <laughs> use a, a flat spray paint, and then I'd rub sand in it, and it, it kills that shine, of course. Um Oh yeah, yeah. I, I, nothing is good enough for the. You know, I, I fix it the way I want it. I, I shoot an elevated rest. Uh, you know, a little mascara brush rest, about a quarter inch up. I shoot a glove. Um, what else? Three fletch. Oh, or four I, fletch? I, three fletch. Uh, four inch, four inch feathers, and I shoot cock feather in. Um. I, uh, what's it? I close my left eye when I shoot 
and that has helped me more than anything shooting. And that is, uh, as I'm drawing, I close my left eye because if you hold your finger out in front of you, you know how you test for right eye, left eye dominant, you see two fingers. Well, when that arrow's out in front of you, how many arrows are there? There's two of them. Now, one is predominant, but once you close your left eye, because I'm right eye dominant, once you close your left eye, there's only one arrow there. And that has done, that has helped me more than anything shooting. Uh, the other thing is, uh, Curtis, young guy in town, Curtis Jorgensen, he, he got me wound up about tuning the correct way to tune my recurve, and that's paper tuning it. You know, whether it's arrow length, weight, spine, um, elevated rest, uh, everything. And, and I'm, I am nuts about, I've shot probably thousands of holes in paper just learning about that. Very and good. do you, so, do you change your setup or are you shooting the same arrow, you know, setup you've been shooting for years? Well, no, uh, whatever bow I'm shooting, that tells me which arrow I shoot. Because unless it paper tunes good, you know, you gotta change arrows. I have 500s, 400s, uh, and 340s. And I'm having real fits with my, my right hand, my drawing hand. I've had a couple of surgeries in the last two years in my right hand because my fingers are full of arthritis. And so for a while, I was shooting a longbow with a release. Well, I had to jump up two arrow sizes because when I put a string loop on, I shot a release because my fingers were toast. Uh, it just changes everything, and the paper tells you what is going on. So, to me, you shouldn't even go in the woods unless you paper-tuned your bow. And I, I paper-tune it with the feathers on, not bear shaft. Yeah. If you aren't going to go hunting without a, you aren't going to go hunting without feathers. And these great big five-inch feathers that have this radical uh, twist to them, that's only to compensate because your arrows aren't shooting good. Right. You're trying to get too much, you know, you're, you're just trying to compensate for poor arrow flight to have that much of it. I, I do shoot a, oh, I don't know, what is it, a five-degree helical or something. Um, but if you get it started out right, it will stay right. What, uh, so, what, arrow, what arrows and uh, broadheads do you like presently? Right now, um, um I'm shooting a recurve again, and I think I'm shooting 400s with a stinger, a 150-grain stinger. Now, I've shot, oh, gosh, I wrote them all down. I wondered if that might come up. Oh, of course, now I can't find it. Anyway, I've shot, um, let's see, probably Ben Pearson, Howard Hunters, Bear, Bighorn, Predator, Palmer, um, Pronghorns, and Yellowstone. So I've shot all those bows over the years. And I used to shoot 80 pounds. Well, there's part of the problem with my fingers, and I've had four shoulder operations, probably because, partially because of that, partially construction. But shooting heavy bows will tear you up over the years. So... Um, Let's see, what else equipment? Uh, for for broadheads, 
Broadheads and arrows, what, what brands of those are you liking? Okay, well, right now I went to a stinger. I've shot Zwickies and Bears, and and I shot Zwickies for years and years and years. But one time I filed them too thin, and actually I shot a lion, and I hit her in the shoulder blade, and the broadhead actually curled back. Well, long story short, I ended up shooting her at about 12 inches with a flashlight in my mouth, and that got pretty western before it was over. <laughs> so, um, uh, but, but I mean, if I'd have filed them, you know, so they weren't so thin, I wouldn't have had that problem. But I have had one or two separate. And then I had, uh, I shot a Boyer's, and I've shot Cutthroats. I've shot uh, VPAs. Um, always something I didn't care for. So last year I shot a 150-grain Stinger. Uh, seemed to work really well, uh, but I'm sure in three or four years I'll find something I don't like well, about you. That. You didn't care for the single bevel heads, is that what you're saying? Well, yes. Between me and Susan, the last four elk we shot, I never had a blood trail, um, and so I, I was sold on single bevels, you know, just a two blade, and I shot a, a bunch of critters with them. And, well, I shouldn't say a bunch, but I probably shot five or six or seven, maybe. Uh, the, the one brand, uh, I had two of them break. And so what I did, I did some testing. I put them in a vise to where it was five-eighths of an inch across where the, where the broadhead went into the vise. And then I would measure up two inches, or I think it was four inches from the vise up. I put a vise grip. I hooked a a rope on it, and I put a scale on it, and I'd pull it until the broadhead broke, and this one broke at 18 pounds. Uh, the other one broke at, I think, 52 pounds or something like that, and then I, I did some other broadheads that all broke in the high 40s, low 50s, but the one just snapped, and that wow. cost, that might have cost me a huge deer in Colorado. Well, do you mind sharing the brands i mean we're not sponsored we don't care we'd love to know oh okay yeah the the one that broke was in a boyer broadhead okay that one uh, and I, I broke like three or four of them and they all broke like 18 or 19 pounds now the, the key to this is you got to treat them all the same I, I went to where the broadhead was five eighths of an inch wide and if the ferrule stuck down in there a little bit i had to add little pieces of formica so that I wasn't crimping the ferrule with a vise. I was only dealing with the broadhead, the, the blade of the broadhead. I, I, I broke a steel force. I shot those for a while. Um, let's see. I did steel force. The, the, uh, oh, gosh. What about the, what about the grizzly and the cutthroat? Did you test those? The, 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 the cutthroat, uh, that broke really well. I broke one of those, and I think it was, I think it was like 52 pounds. I've still got them all out there with how I broke them and what they broke at. That one broke really well. Uh, you can get them extremely sharp. I, I just did not have blood trails, and, and with, uh, you know, I, I know they leave a, they'll leave a slit, and that slit opens up. Ideally, I would like a three-blade broadhead. But they're hard to sharpen. I know how to sharpen them, but you got to make a hacksaw cut and a piece of wood, put them in, then you file them way down into 
the groove that they make uh, because 60 degrees is not sharp. I don't care what you do. You know, filing something flat, you know, each one of those blades is 60 degrees. Have you ever seen a steak knife that was 60 degrees? Yeah. Right. See, so, so that's my idea. Now, the two blades, wicked sharp, absolutely wicked. I love them, but I just uh, I did not have any blood trail, although we got all the elk, but uh, I like having a blood trail. Yeah. And so, like, oh, bear razor heads, you know, I had those fail. Uh, I had a couple of Zwickies fail. Um, the Stinger, you know, if I hit a great big bone, I'm sure it will fail, although I shot one all uh, last fall, and I just pounded it, and it held up pretty good. Uh, you know, I hit rocks and all kinds of stuff. It held up pretty good. Um, but eventually I'll have one of those fail, and I'll be mad, and I'll, I'll look for something else. But I'm just I'm one of them guys. I'm not satisfied with anything. What, uh, what longbow did you shoot last year? That was Rich Wormington's. It's a Yellowstone. Yeah. And and the other thing I do do, and, and here's something else boyers will jump up and down and slap me around for, is uh, on a takedown longbow or a recurve, I've done this for years, is if I want it stronger or weaker, I will cut a wedge. You know where the attachment is from the riser to the limb, I will cut wedges that may be from an eighth to nothing. you got to drill the holes in for the alignment pins and for the bolts. And you can kick that limb forward a little or back, turn the wedge around or back. You can weaken or increase the weight of that bow up to three pounds before it seems like it's the law of diminishing returns. And then you've got to be careful. The bolt doesn't get too short. And if you go real radical, now you got to turn a wedge around and put it under the head of the bolt so the bolt is sitting square to the axis of the of all your your attachments the wedges plus the limb you know you can't have it cockeyed crooked um, anyway I've used wedges to increase or decrease the weight of my bows huh. so you modify I've done that everything. for a long time yeah yeah I, I told you I'm not satisfied with anything. <laughs> so that's awesome yeah boyers would like to slap me around and then kick me but uh you know once i buy it it's my bow yeah, that's right <laughs> that's right so um, what what poundage are you changing your poundage uh early season to late season as far as weather or oh no 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 i shoot the same thing all the time i i think rich's bow i think it was right at 50 uh, the longbow I shot last year. Uh-huh. And so, um, yeah, that's what I shot. And I don't know if I'm going to shoot that one this year. I'm going to jump back to a recurve. I haven't quite decided yet, but, but it'll be around 50 pounds, maybe 52. Yeah. Uh, now it depends on my fingers. If my, if I can, I don't know if I can get more quarters on in my fingers or not, but, uh, that makes a difference. Because if I absolutely have to go to a release, uh, well, that's embarrassing. But uh, it's it's what I may have to do someday because my fingers are so shot on my right hand. It's that yeah. an easy life you've lived. Yeah, Bob had Pardon mentioned me? that. It's, I said it's that easy life you've lived. 
Bob had mentioned that you had shoulder surgery and then went back to work three days uh, later. Is that true? Oh, God. Oh, I, I can't even believe. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, I had rotator cuff done one time on a Thursday, and I went back to work Monday. Uh, just made The doctor said, well, it'll take forever to heal, but it may heal stronger. So uh, I think it was six weeks later I had the other side done. Now, I didn't go back to work and swing a hammer. You know, I just kind of let it hang there like an elephant trunk, you know, and, uh, just flopping around. But it, uh, I didn't want to sit at home for six weeks. Yeah, because you, so anyway, you were thinking about hunting season, right? You didn't want to burn up your days. <laughs> well, I had all the days I wanted that didn't matter. Oh, right. <laughs> See, they were going to pay me for... Uh, workman's comp for being off six weeks and i said well that's nonsense i i'll just go back to work i mean i can at least yell at people and tell them what to do <laughs> so um so I, I just went back to work and of course you you i abused it you know um i always have i'm just one of them kind of idiots that uh um i i don't listen to the doctors very well so moving into the late season, what uh, and while we're on gear, what what do you are you a wool guy? Do you wear a lot of wool, or what what do you do? Are you um, sounds like you're tree stand hunting a little bit? Can you tell us a little <laughs> bit about your gear and kind of move into the late season uh, rut hunt? Yep, yep. Well, uh, I told you that Curtis he he uh, uh, he got me turned on to the the, the tuning, and I always tell him cotton is the best. And I do it just to irritate him, but I do wear a lot of cotton. Uh, you know, I'll wear wool long johns. Um, and what I've got to do in Idaho is I climb, I've got to climb 600 vertical feet to a tree stand. It's, and by the time I'm ready to shoot, it takes me almost an hour and a half. So when you get up there, you're sweating. Uh, it doesn't matter if you, you take half your clothes off or not. Usually I leave clothes at the tree stand in a trash bag. And then I'll put on my final layer up there, you know, when it's cold. Uh, one time I went up and I got in a tree, it was 18 below, and I went back to the truck, it was like 8 above. And what I would do is I, I, I had a sleeping bag. And so I'd just get in the sleeping bag. In fact, one of the deer I shot, the one I shot out of a tree, uh, I had to let the sleeping bag fall off my shoulders when this deer come by, and then I thumped it. But it, it was really cold that day. Um, now, what I do do where I have a tree stand, it's in a saddle, and I packed up a sheet of plywood up there, well, uh, two-thirds of a sheet of plywood, and then I cut it to fit the tree to block the wind, which helped me more than anything, because the wind just whistles through the saddle, and, it's, you know, this is in November and December, and there's always snow on the ground. So I would, uh, uh, that helps a whole bunch. you got to block that wind and then sit in that stupid tree, and uh, I don't wear winter boots. I... Uh, I wear my leather boots, and I just wear one pair of wool socks. Um, but I will wear sometimes a couple pairs of long johns, and then uh, enough stuff on top to keep me semi-warm. Uh, I'm just, you know, sometimes I wear wool, sometimes I don't. Uh, but I'm never, uh, I, I do like a wool shirt on, just a dark green wool shirt that, I have a couple of them, and I wear them quite a bit. But as far as being a 
uh, a uh, clothing junkie. Yeah, I I just wear whatever's handy. Okay. Uh, so these so these late season hunts sounds like you're doing some tree stand hunting. I'm sure you've done it all over the years. Um, sounds like you've done some rattling and some. Have you done any still yeah. hunting in the thicker country? Like, what are your tactics, oh, and when does the rut oh, when does the rut usually start? You know, in these states. Well, see, um, when you bounce around, it's kind of different in each one. Of course, in Wyoming, we're done September thirtieth. So you're you're kind of shot out of the saddle really early. Now in in Montana, you can archery hunt until about October 18th or so, depending on. It always starts and ends on weekends. Mm-hmm. So you're you're midway through October. A little bit of the bucks being a little uh, nosy, but but not much. But the first week or two, or probably at least the first week of rifle season up there, I never see anybody. I'll go up and put on my stupid little orange hat and, and wander around up there and play like I'm hunting. Um, never done me much good, but it beats watching Oprah. So, um, and then in, in, in Colorado, uh, of course you can hunt mo- out east. You can hunt most of October. And this year I went down there and did that and, and chased some really nice deer around. And then I think most of those were murdered by the rifle, the first rifle season. And then um, now, when you go back, uh, it reopens about November sixth oh, or seventh, and, and then the rut's kicking in, and now you got to deal with does and bucks just traveling all the time. Sometimes, but it, it's uh, you can run into anything at that time. You know, it might be a single buck, it might be a buck with six or eight does. You might see three or four bucks and two or three does. You can run into anything then. So. Uh, and usually that's spot and stock, although I did kill the one from a tree stand this year um, down there. Uh, and then in Idaho, uh, now it's it's full rut, and then a little bit of post-rut, you know, by December 5th there, you're seeing single bucks come through and wandering around, but uh, a lot of times they're, they're still with a doe. And once you got snow on the ground, it is tough because... Uh, of the squeaky snow or crusty snow and by the late in the rut those deer will come come into a pocket and just lay there most of the day and if you almost anything you try and do you you blow them out because there's multiple deer um they can see everything because there's snow on the ground but once again you aren't watching oprah so um you may as well be hunting so do you like that time frame before Thanksgiving? Um, it seems like, from my limited experience, it seems to be a pretty good time to be out and about. What's been? I know, I know it's weather dependent, but what's your opinion on that? Well, um, yes and no, because uh, you know if the bucks are running, uh, you're not going to catch them usually. I mean, if they're if they're cruising, um, you know, you're always trying to play catch up. And if they have a bunch of does with them down in some hole, now you got multiple deer. Um, although uh, they make mistakes all the time, and so you, you may or may not. It all works. I, I would hunt one in a blizzard. I don't care. I'm out. And so, and that brings me to another thing: is 
you know, we, we're talking all about bow hunting. And one of the main reasons I go out is just to be out and find the crap that I've found over the years. The, uh, the incredible goofy, you know, I've got a grizzly skull, ancient old grizzly skull. I've got a huge eight point antler grown in a tree. Um, you know, you always find shed antlers. I have one with a bullet hole through it. Um, arrowheads, um, all the bullets. I don't know how many old bullets we found. You know, the ones with the, the grease rings on them. Um, just and the incredible amount of fossils you find. You know, that's the cake. The the deer or the frosting. Right. The cake so just is the, the good yeah. rock formations. Uh, yeah. And then I've I've got some other, oh, I've pulled some real stupid stunts. You know, I ended up crawling in a cave and shooting a bear with a twenty-two. one time. I'd shot him through the front leg. And when you crawl in, you have to turn your head to the side because you can't get in. It's so tight. Um, and then like that lion that I shot at a foot. And, and uh, you know, I shot another lion at about four yards. Um, anyway... And, those and then I run a broadhead into my leg. Uh, yeah. So you, like you, you should. You uh, those lions are those lions are without dogs too, right? Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> no big deal. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I just mean, went up two days ago looking, and of course it was real late, and I mean it's late in the season, and, and the odds of ever killing one are one in a million. I haven't killed a lion in thirty-three years, I think. But I did kill two way back when. There were more lions then. And last year, uh, I found a lion on an elk. She just killed it. It was a, a big five-by-one elk, and she just killed it. She hadn't even got him opened up yet, and I was just going to go up to call. Well, I ended up taking a bunch of pictures because I couldn't get close. And put up a tree stand, but it was really cold. And um, every time I'd go up, the cat was on the elk, so I'd have to scare her away and then sit in the tree. And, well, that was stupid. Pretty soon, you know, within two hours, you freeze out because it's below zero, and and that kind of stuff. But it was fun. I ended up with the elk head and got a tag for it. Um, just that's the cake. Yeah. The other well, stuff's the frosting. And that's why, you know, that's why we love bow hunting and especially hunting with the traditional bow. You got to get close and you got to spend that time to earn it. And you know, as yep. well as anybody, I mean, hunting deer for 26 years in Idaho and killing three, it's not, even even the master like yourself, you spend a lot of days out there just nature watching. I mean, and, and oh, yeah. bow hunters, that's what we do. We we hunt for 30 days and maybe get one opportunity, but, you know, different breed. Yep. It's, uh, yeah, it, it ain't so much about the trophy. It's, it's, it's the journey, of course. I mean, everybody's heard that, but it's true. It's... Yeah. Uh, I, I was probably up lion hunting this year, probably, I guess, 20 days. I never saw one, and uh, I jumped on one day, but I don't care. Yeah. I'm not well, there to kill a lion. Otherwise, I'd go with dogs and have somebody take me, and I could go kill a lion at any time. But that ain't why I'm going. And I'm damn sure not going to kill one since it's been 33 years since I killed one. <laughs> So, I mean, gee, many creepers. <laughs> it's a good excuse to go out there and chase one around. I've talked to James about this. We, uh, 
We have a lot we, of them. Yeah, we we have a lot of them in Oregon because you can't hunt with dogs. And so I've talked to him about like heck with it. Let's quit hunting deer and elk and just start lion hunting. I bet we do pretty good after a while. You would put time. Well, in. I mean, uh, you have you have you have snow on the ground, right? I mean, I don't yeah. know much about Oregon. Yeah, we I got places where there's snow on the ground, and like I said, where there's so many lions, it's crazy. I mean, I killed one out of a tree stand elk hunting a couple years ago. Our buddy Tipton yeah. killed one. Was it last year? He killed oh. one calling. Guys the killing them all the time, just calling elk. On the and ground. Lions yeah. come in. And... Yeah, if you got a lot of lions, yeah, it's going to happen. Uh, you got to keep your wits about you because it, it might be kind of intimidating when one's, you know, walking right straight at you, looking you in the eye. Uh, yeah, you better keep your head on. But uh, they aren't going to take you. But it still might make you change your shorts at the end of the day. <laughs> so... Oh, um, yeah. Anyway, yeah, there's lots of oh, just some of the stupid stunts is what it's all about. So it sounds like the November hunt might be the most difficult time to kill a mule deer. Is that fair to say? Actually, in Colorado, I've done really well in November. Of course, I, I don't. There's no seasons in Wyoming in November, so that's out. Right. In Montana. Uh, there's some rifle season, but that's kind of a joke because on the public land in Montana, uh, the rifle mule deer season goes clear till Thanksgiving. So they pretty much murder everything that's on public land. So that's kind of out. And so I have Colorado or Idaho, and you only draw Colorado about every, every so many years. So that is feast or famine. And then uh, Idaho, uh, I always get that, but that is tough. But it's the cake, and not the and not the the uh, frosting. So, right, yeah, we had a uh, a limited draw tag. Me and Bob did in November uh, in a place that used to be legendary for mule deer, but because of the mountain lions, um, they are far and few between, and it was a November 1st through the 7th hunt, and we showed up early and did a lot of scouting. And, uh, man, there were a lot of does, but we there were very few bucks, and they were always moving and always feeding. It was cold, and it was a very difficult hunt. It was very difficult. I thought, oh, yeah, they're going to be pre-rut. It's going to be, you know, this great action, and it really wasn't <laughs> what I thought it was going to be. But like you said, the cake was there. There was a huge cake to be had. Um, the beautiful country. We had it to ourselves pretty much. And we had a great time. There just wasn't uh, very many bucks to shoot at. No, no ice. Yeah, and some, sometimes that you, you need to get with some lo- either local guys or the game and fish and, and, and ask them, you know, how, why is it this way? And maybe there's a little tidbit there you aren't aware of, uh, whether it's elevation or maybe they're shot off real hard in the general season um Uh, we were in you know uh, we were in a wildlife refuge where even if you saw a mountain lion or a coyote you weren't allowed to shoot them oh really yeah but how come there were no good bucks what do you think bob i think it's just a combination of the too many predators over the years and and uh you know they just aren't able to keep up and there's lions and coyotes that don't get hunted, and then they're still hunt. We're still hunting the deer every year, and I think it just slowly. You mean 
now this is you can't hunt a cat or a, a, a coyote because it's in a, a refuge. Yeah. Well, you can't hunt them in Oregon as it is without dogs. You can't hunt lions or bears, but you yeah. can you can still shoot them without dogs. Now, in that refuge, since it's a federal refuge, there's no predator hunting, no no hunting lions or even coyotes. Yeah, I wonder what the rationale is behind that. Yeah, it's just, just I mean, they made it a refuge back in the 70s, and it's, you know, yeah, the heyday was back well, then and in the 80s, and it's just gone downhill since then. Yeah, but is there a rifle season there? No, there isn't. In that just, refuge? Just muzzle. Oh, really? No, there's, there's, two okay. er, there's two early archery deer seasons, uh, one early antelope archery season and then there's a muzzleloader deer season um so yeah there's no there's no rifle uh hunting in there um for them huh. but they they do get hunted in august with archery and twice two different seasons and then they have only five tags for the november hunt which took me and bob 14 points a piece to draw oh, oh my gosh yeah and then you didn't see any mature bucks, it sounds like. Yeah, not really. Yeah. But that's yeah. kind of well, that point, it, Yeah, at that point, it doesn't become cake. It becomes more plate. <laughs> <laughs> you can't even see well, one. Yeah, but like you said, the place is such a beautiful place, and we were seeing yeah. uh, 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 petroglyphs from the Indians on the, on the rocks oh, yeah. and arrowheads. And it's historically just so gorgeous. So that was the cake. We were in a very beautiful place, yep. and we had it to ourselves. Yeah, well, it, that is sweet. Uh, but, it, I mean, it's just frustrating not to have anything yeah. that uh, makes it worth a, a stock, you know. But, yeah, we, yeah, we have that stuff. That's, that is the cake, of course. Yeah, for sure. Well, uh, we really, really, really enjoyed talking mule deer with you. And, um, is there, uh, any suggestions you have for us, uh, young whippersnappers who are going to be going, to, uh, a field this, uh, this fall chasing those, uh, wily bucks? Yep. Keep walking. <laughs> keep walking. Whatever you do, keep walking. Cause there's always something over that other hill. It might be a long way back to the truck, but, uh, uh, It'll keep your blood pressure pretty good. Uh, it'll keep you from getting too old too quick. Um, just, just keep walking. Keep you learn a lot. And look at the ground. That ground will teach you more than looking around ever will. I've off, I've always thought that. Uh, whether it's tracks or rubs or whatever, uh, pay attention to the ground. I like. You know, it. I've got, I have so many people say. Well, I've never found an arrowhead in my life. Uh, well, yeah, you probably aren't looking at the ground. Now, this hasn't got, got anything to do with arrowheads. It has to do with um, tracks, trails, uh, paying attention to what they're eating, things like that. It, I think too many people just go for a walk and don't pay attention to what they're walking through for what it's worth. That's sound advice, yeah. Heck yeah, we could we could talk forever, and we'll definitely have to get you back on and and learn some more of your tricks and talk elk and lions and doll sheep and I mean we could go on forever, but we know you're a busy yeah. guy and two hours we don't want to push it any further. So 
We'll cover all yeah. that on another one, Mike. This was awesome. Okay. I'm, I'm in my leafy suit. I'm all fired up. I'm ready to go stock a mule deer right now, but i got to wait like four months. Oh, me too. No, you don't. You can go stock any of them you want. That's I mean, true. you'll learn a lot. Yeah, you'll true. learn a lot. Stock them does. They'll teach you what you're doing wrong in a heartbeat. <laughs> I like it. That's great. Awesome. Thank you so much, Mike. We really appreciate your time. Yep. You're all welcome. Right. Once again, we'd like to thank all the listeners and our Patreon supporters. Don't forget to tell your friends about the podcast and uh, hope we can get some more listeners on Patreon help support the podcast. We definitely appreciate it. Don't forget to leave us a five-star review on wherever you listen to your podcast. That helps the podcast out. And keep the wind in your face. Pick a spot 